This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we're talking about uh, sort of the different generations that we have today. Uh, we know that it doesn't matter where, what age group you're in or where you fall in those groups. Uh, there's financial challenges, every one of them. Debt doesn't discriminate. Debt does not <laughs> discriminate. Uh, I, but this is cool, and this is why I want you to pay attention. Sands & Associates does an annual study examining trends and key information about British Columbians, period, who are facing financial challenges or difficulties, and they get divided up into groups. And we're going to talk about the sandwich generation in this segment, which... I think is really, really interesting. I learned a lot when I was reading and preparing for this for this segment. Um, let's talk about who the sandwich generation is. Yeah, so I, I actually fit pretty squarely in the in this demographic. So it's uh, defined as people within between the ages of thirty one to fifty four, um, and it's called the sandwich generation because you know essentially this is a group of folks that are sandwiched by financial pressures on both sides because mm-hmm. quite often they're supporting elderly parents that are still around but perhaps need some help. Mm-hmm. You know, whether financially or otherwise, so that's one half of the sandwich. But then oftentimes they have a family of their own. So they're trying to support, you know, children, a spouse, or perhaps, you know, even immediate family members that might be having some challenges. So it can lead to a squeeze effect where, you know, you're looking after the older generation and the younger generation, and you feel like you're sandwiched in the middle. Yeah, I've, uh, yeah, I'm not in that group anymore, but I used to be. And I used to be in that place where I had elderly parents that I was trying to support in different ways. And and then, uh, not that I have children, but uh, looking after other people in my family at the same time. And mm-hmm. it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a very challenging place to be. Um, yeah, it's just a very challenging place to be. Yeah, so, and, and that's what we found, Elaine. So you mentioned our study, and every year we do the largest in-depth study that's ever done the problems of BC focused on people who are having financial difficulties, and it really does change across the demographics. So what people who are senior citizens versus youth individuals, they had some really big differences compared to what we're going to focus on today, which is the sandwich generation. Okay, so let's talk about that. How much debt uh, does the average person in the sandwich generation, how much debt do they hold? Yeah, and this is all, you know, how how much debt did they have before they reached out for help? Sure. So, you know, there are folks, you know, probably, you know, they have a, a smaller amount of debt, but if it's escalating at some point, they will reach the point where they think they need to get some help. And that's usually when they would reach out to Sands and Associates or another trustee. Okay. So what we found is there were two main categories that was over half of, um, you know, over actually 60% um, of, of the research here. Uh, there was a category about one in four people, they had between ten dollars and $25,000 of debt. Um, you know, depending on your frame of reference, that might sound like a huge amount of debt or not very much, depending on your, on your income. Sure. Uh, but definitely it's once you get above, you know, roughly $10,000 of credit card debt specifically, the interest rate just really starts to work against you. You know, compound interest on interest when it's greater than $10,000, it can really start to snowball quickly. So, you know, one in four, it was in the range of 10 to 25. Um, the next um, segment, and this was actually the, the the largest segment in total, and it was about, you know, two out of five people or 40%, they were in the range of twenty-five to $50,000. That's a huge amount of money. 
Yeah, you can imagine, you know, that might be, you know, seven or eight different credit cards. You know, there's not one credit card that's sitting there at $50,000, but, you know, in total, it's it's a big number. And, you know, a lot of the times the folks that I meet with when uh, the debt's that high, uh, you know, there, there's two things. One is often the only way they're surviving is by playing what we call financial Tetris. And what that means is you're taking money from one card, you know, getting a piece off that card and putting a little bit of money on another card so that you get below the limit for one month and then you can, you can live another month. But you're just moving money around um, quite often. And, you know, another thing that we really noticed is, you know, how did debt get to this point? Sometimes there's been either one or even more than that failed consolidation attempts. So someone knew they were having a problem. They sat down, they got their bank to, you know, either put all the money together on a low rate card or they took out a loan. Um, but where a consolidation can fail, is after you do the consolidation, you got to make sure you dealt with the underlying problem and you're not borrowing money still because a lot of the time they've got to consolidate the balance and then the credit cards have unfortunately, you know, escalated again to what they were before. So if I'm up to my eyeballs in, in looking after and, and supporting parents or o- older people within my family and I've got my own family, uh, it's pretty hard to pay attention Mm -hmm. to the kinds of signs that we need to pay attention to that show us we're in trouble, that debt is becoming larger than it needs to be or should be or can be in terms of being able to look after it. Mm -hmm. So where, when, and how did these people figure that out? You know, similar to to many folks that come in to to see us, you know, they were functioning just fine. You know, they were somehow managing to get things paid, but then there was a shock to the system. So what people told us, you know, the top causes in in order here, uh, you know, one in four people, it was overextension of credit or financial mismanagement. So people just said, you know what, I manage things not the right way. I'm, you know, moving money around too much. I'm paying too much interest. You know, very much they put the blame on themselves. And usually there's a combination of factors, uh, but definitely people self-identify and say, you know, this is my fault that I overextended myself. I financially mismanaged myself and now I need some help. Sure. Now, when we look a little bit more deeply, um, you know, the other of the top three causes, so the one is financial mismanagement, but the other job related, you know, unemployment, a layoff, a reduction in pay, generally something almost always outside of your control, you know, unless you quit your job, which most people don't do, but it's often it's a shock to the system that suddenly your income is not what it was and your house of cards, so to speak, that you've built up by just being able to pay the minimums every month that can crumble very quickly if suddenly the income isn't there to just make the minimums anymore. And it was 16% of the folks that fall into this age category yeah. that that was the reason they got there. Exactly, yeah. And that's a that's a significant uh, percentage to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. What's the third one on this? The third one is definitely if folks are, are thinking out there, okay, you know, midlife, well, what could really cause me a problem? You know, definitely you're losing your job could, but almost equally losing your relationship. So going through a divorce or the dissolution of a long-term relationship or having uh, a spouse unfortunately pass away or one of those those types of issues can be financially catastrophic. So especially within this uh, generation, that was on par with job loss. And again, just slightly behind blaming yourself for the problem. Interesting. So how do you, so how, how do I know that or, or how do you guys know that, yeah, this is a problem, the debt is a problem, what are the, what are the things that people are doing? You know, for us as um, as experts, it's pretty straightforward when we sit down and, you know, we put all the things out on a sheet of paper, we can very quickly see, well, you've got so much debt that all you're doing is paying minimum payments. You know, we can do the math very quickly. Um, but what individuals actually feel when they come through the door, it, what's been gratifying to me is more and more individuals are doing the math themselves. Oh. So what they're finding out is, you know what, I'm only making the minimum payments each month and I'm really struggling to do that. 
and I look closely at my credit card statements, which you and I have talked about mm-hmm. before, Elaine, there's that disclosure. Yes. That if you only make the minimum payments, you know, if it's taking you 20 or 40 or 80 or 100 years to pay it off. Exactly. You know, that's a great little piece of information to gnaw at you in the back of your mind saying, I've got to do something different or I'm going to owe this money until I'm not here anymore. Yeah. I got well, I got a credit card bill this week and I looked mm-hmm. at it and because I thought, oh, I'm going to see. Blair tells me that that's on here somewhere. Yeah. So I looked and sure enough, it told me that I'd be, I'd have this paid off in two years in four months or 20 years in four right. months. I can't remember what yeah. it was. And I just laughed. I thought, oh man, that's crazy. Yeah, it's I, crazy. They're t- I mean, it's good that they're telling me this, but I mean, it's just dumb, right? I mm-hmm. mean, it's impossible. Impossible. Yeah. You know, I, I often tell individuals, you know, look at it from the credit card company's perspective. You know, they're earning a 20% return on the money that they've lended, lent to you every single year. Could you imagine where you could ever invest to earn 20% year after exactly. year? No problems. It doesn't exist out here. Yeah, right. I hear so you. when it's working against you, you know, you, you really have to have to take stock and say, we're going to do something different. So yeah, one of the number one reasons why people came to see us is they looked at their minimum payments and they just knew they weren't coming We're getting ahead. What are the other? You've got two more that are the top three ones. Yeah, definitely. The the second one, and this is, again, someone looking at their own situation and just saying, you know, the indicators are moving in the wrong direction. So this is just simply accumulating more debt. So, you know, pick a point in the year and compare yourself to last year. Do you owe more money now or do you owe more money or did you owe owe less money now? Are Are you better off than you were a year ago or not? And if that answer is no, well, then obviously you're trending in the wrong direction. Exactly. So the second largest factor for us was people saying, well, we just know we're accumulating debt. We, we don't know what to do to stop it, but every year or every month we end up more in debt. Got it. And then the third one is really evident, right? When your phone is ringing off the line. Yeah, this one's, you know, as old as, as the phone probably, but these are collection calls. Yeah. So yeah, Oof. when you've got someone coming through the phone at you, now oftentimes they're threatening things that aren't true and could never happen, but you can imagine how scary it can be. Someone saying, I'm going to be at your door tomorrow to cart away your furniture, and I'm going to be telling all your neighbors about it. Yeah, and how stressful that is on top of all the other stresses. So again, we're talking about the sandwich generation. Uh, Anywhere you're aged, anywhere between 31 to 54, you've got two ends of stress. You've got you're looking after older parents, and then you've got your own family you're looking after. What do folks do first? I mean, if they don't phone you, Mm -hmm. what do they do? Oh yeah, and we're never the first call, right? You know, everyone's going to try to fix it on their own first, which you should, right? Yeah. You know, your, your first call should not be to the trustee. It should be, you know, let's look at what we can do to fix the situation. So, you know, most people, they try to cut their expenses first. You know, the top categories people um, speak to us about and very common sense stuff, they, you know, less entertainment and less dining out. See, that makes good sense to mm-hmm. me. Yeah, it's a very easy way to spend hundreds of dollars a month without even really noticing it if it's just, you know, the odd restaurant or a little bit of entertainment here and there. Uh, you know, clothing expenditures and shopping. Uh, but then the third one's very concerning. It's yeah. all about savings and retirement contributions. So it's really compromising your future to deal with paying off your past consumption. Yeah, and that's a real middle class kind of thing. It's like, well, I've got all this money saved. I need to use that to pay off my debts. And you go, yeah. no. Yeah, almost always a bad idea. RRSPs, all those things that yeah. you've put money into. Yeah, just don't touch them unless you've spoken to an expert and you know exactly what you're signing on for. If you do it with eyes wide open, great, but many people compromise their retirement for no good reason. Yeah, and then of course other friends and family going to them for money. Yeah, and we we often say on this show, you know, that's just enlarging the problem. You know, it generally it's not going to solve, but it's not going to get you out of debt. And now you've got someone that you really care about, a family member that you might potentially have to disappoint at some point, because if you owe a bunch of people money, whether it's a family member or not, you can't suddenly start to treat them preferential and only pay back 
your family member. You have to be fair to everybody. Right. And then you think, oh, well, what if I take a, a second job or work longer hours, which is unbelievably just adds way much more stress on top of an already yeah. stressful situation. And sometimes guess, more expense too, right? Commuting and different, different out-of-pocket costs. Yeah. Exactly. So in, in our, as we wind up this segment, so everybody's got their own challenges. Each generation, we know that. What are some of the challenges that the sandwich uh, generation is up against in particular? You know, a lot of the pressures that they're facing um, come down to trying to manage, you know, their own finances, but also support other family members. So, you know, the old airplane analogy is, you know, fix your mask first before you try to help others. Uh, Many times in the sandwich generation, they're so focused on trying to help everybody else that their own financial situation can suffer. And the overwhelmingness of that as well, right? Mm -hmm. It's got to be huge. Yeah. And, you know, most of the time, individuals that I deal with, they're not weak people by, by any means, but it's just if you don't see a solution, if you see everything closing in at once, you know, it can just lead to your stress level rising, your physical tolls, emotional impacts of debt, all things we're going to talk about in other segments here, but debt stress is real stress. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services that we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or you can call 1-800-661-3030 to find an office near you and make an appointment for a free consultation. On the line with us right now is Terrence and... uh, Terrence is a former client of Sands and Associates, uh, and uh, you said a you said a lovely thing before we started, Terrence, about uh, um, just appreciating the work that Sands and Associates did for you. Yeah, I certainly do appreciate them a lot, Elaine. It's lovely. Go ahead, Blair. Great. Well, th- thank you, Terrence. Thank you for joining us and for having um, you know the, the courage to, to come forward and, and to tell your story because I know there are so many people who are struggling, who are facing similar situations to what you faced. You faced it head on and, and came out the uh, the other side better off for it. Um, and I've always been impressed, Terrence, that you're happy to share that experience. So I wonder if we could start. Can you just give us a little bit of background about the situation? You know, what was your life like before you, you reached out for help to us? How did you know that you, you needed? the help of Sands and Associates. Well, you know, Blair, it it was I was just like the average person, working my way through life and paying my bills and everything was going along smooth. And then by chance I won a considerable amount of money. Hmm. I, I tried some investments and not being what one would call a good money handler, I made some pretty bad mistakes. I, I allowed myself to falsely think that somehow things would just work out. Right. And somehow all would be well. And that was just wishful thinking, Blair, on my part. I really needed some advice and some help. And so that's why I reached out. Uh, I made the mistake of trying to recuperate my losses, and that led me to living off credit cards and putting off paying some current debts. One day, I had the shock of my life and a real m- stopping moment. I saw for the first time the small print on one of my mm-hmm. credit cards statements that read, if you make only the required minimum payment, it'll take you 26 years to pay off this card. (laughs) (laughs) Larry, you can imagine the shock I got. And and Terrence, I I don't mean to to date you, but do you mind giving a sense of of your age at this point? Hopefully there's 26 years there. 
Well, that yeah. Well, I was actually seventy seventy six years old. Right. And so I thought, well, wait a minute. I may or may not get this paid off before I leave. So I better look into something. Right. And um, and the amount was not in the hundreds of thousands of dollars either. That's what really shocked me. And I thought the amount was manageable, uh, except it would take so long to pay it off. Then along came a, a late night TV show about bankruptcy. And the person being interviewed was a money manager, a multimillionaire, who had made some poor choices and wanted to let folks know that there was no shame um, in these poor choices and no embarrassment in filing bankruptcy. And, Blair, that's when I sat up. And this person had said, you know, mistakes happen with a lot of folks, and some poor times poor choices are made. Well, I dropped my shame, I dropped my embarrassment, I squared my shoulders, and I decided to seek some help. Right. And, th- and that's great, Terrence, And that, you know, the stigma that we have for individuals in debt, you know, for so long, I've been frustrated that we don't think necessarily a corporation is bad because they've had to restructure, you know, Air Canada, who's restructured a number of times, we don't think they're a bad company. But individually, we tend to put a lot of stigma on ourselves that we're a bad person if, if we can't always pay our debts back in full. It's true. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, oh, oh not, not at all, Terrence. I wonder if you if you could to kind of bring us along on that journey, because I think it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, so you've reached out to, to make the call. What, what happened from there? Well, I, I had to seek out some folks that um, had filed bankruptcy, and I, I was looking for a company with a good reputation. I, I, you know, you, you get a little nervous about these things. Um, so I finally wound up uh, calling your company, Sands & Associates. What was amazing to me, Blair, was how well I was received. I, I met with a representative uh, who made me feel so warm and friendly. Um, uh, she was a friendly and warm person. It made me feel really welcome. Uh, she put me in a frame of mind of feeling absolutely no embarrassment at filing bankruptcy, regardless of what age. She walked me through the process with care and kindness. And, Blair, the moment I agreed to the terms, which, by the way, were very uncomplicated and very simple to understand, I felt a tremendous relief. The 26 years to pay off that one credit card debt vanished at the moment I put my signature to paper and agreed to the terms of bankruptcy, as outlined, by the way, Blair, by the government and its legal process, and was handled by experts in the field of financial advice and recuperation, and that was your company. And what what did you think you were walking into, Terrence? I'm curious, because I know people are, you know, they really, they beat themselves up and they delay making the call because I think they're worried they're going to come in and feel judged or, or things like that. What what were you imagining for that meeting? Because I can that, tell it exceeded your expectations, but what were really those expectations? Did. Yeah, yep, it really did exceed it because I felt exactly what you're saying. We have this cultural thing, you know, the bankruptcy is a no-no and you must be terrible. And it's not, it, it's not, it's a, it's a, a part of life actually for a lot of people. But this process really, really surprised me as I was under the impression that filing bankruptcy would be an invasion of my personal life and the government would be involved and that process would just take forever. Blair, nothing like that happened. The mm-hmm. process was just about as simple as it gets and with the help of that financial advisor at Sands & Associates, I started to feel good immediately. Terrence, um, I'm curious, how has that experience impacted your financial habits today, and how are you? You know, how are you doing after going through uh, the bankruptcy? How are things now? 
Well, you know, Elaine, really well. This experience of filing the bankruptcy and the solid advice and suggestions from the folks at Sands has made me a better money handler. They, they went through all kinds of uh, processes with me, uh, various simple things to do to make things easier to handle money in the future. Can you talk so, a little bit about what those things were, Terrence? Yep. Or what they you do? Just, they, were, they would have forms that they t- gave me to take home to read, and I would read them, and they would be just suggestions on, or I might call them good ideas, on what to do and how to handle your money, uh, making budgets, what to put aside, how much to put aside, how to prepare for the future, and on all of those things. And so what they did, they gave me, I, I think, like a financial freedom. And that's why I have to thank some of the experts uh, from your place over there and from the professional field. And I would say this to anyone in a difficult money situation, if I may, Elaine and Blair, this is what I would say. Don't wait another day. Pick up the telephone, make that call to Sands and Associates, and set the ball rolling to a happy, secure, and future-free of financial torment. I went through it. I know how bad it is, but I also realize now how easy it was and how good it, it, it feels good. And I would say to those folks, let your financial problems of today be your victory of tomorrow. Let Sands and Associates be the springboard that catapults you into a victory of financial happiness and freedom. And forgive me for going on. You know I like to write, so I, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a kind of a wordy person. You're pretty eloquent, Terrence, I have to admit. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I do get a little wordy, but my, my heart knows there's just no limit to the joy I have in my life now because of what Sands and Associates did for me. And I'm not saying that because you are Sands and Associates and I'm on the radio with you. I'm saying that because that's a personal, happy, joyful feeling inside of me that I'm happy to share with anybody that's having a problem. Terrence, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. You're listening to Dollars and Cents uh, with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. Get a financial fresh start, just like Terrence did, by calling 1-800-661-3030 to find an office near you. Thank you again, Terrence. You're more than welcome, and it was nice speaking with both of you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. On the line with us right now is Laura Tamlin Watts from the BC Law Institute. Uh, Laura Mann has an amazing resume. I'll just tell you a few things about her. Uh, she's a senior fellow and staff lawyer, called to the BC Bar back in 1999, and she's presently at the Canadian Centre for Elder Law, the BC Law Institute. Uh, she has uh, was a, a lead on an, a really interesting study on elder abuse in Canada that was released in 2016, and she also currently teaches law and aging at the University of Toronto. And there's a lot of other things that you've done, Laura, but you know what? We just don't have the time to list them all. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. So I know seniors 
uh, are the uh, group of people that you have literally dedicated your life to in so many aspects. Uh, we, are, of course, this show, Dollars and Cents, is all about the, the money side, the debt side, the financial side. So let's first start there. What are the, some of the main issues that you've come across in all of your study and work and talking and teaching uh, that impact seniors financially, the main things that, that uh, seniors are up against these days? That's a great question. I mean, I think some of the big pieces are looking at how joint accounts and powers of attorney can be used both for good and for bad purposes, mm. looking at second and third marriages through the life course, and things like pensions and benefits. Those are really hot topics that we need to be thinking about as we age. So let's talk about the good news and the bad news on your first one. So powers of attorney are documents that you can make while you're a capable person that can help to choose somebody to be your decision maker when you become mentally incapable. So if you're on one side of the street and you're perfectly fine, you cross the road, you get hit by a car, you're in a coma, someone's going to have to make decisions for you, financial decisions or healthcare decisions. We know when it comes to dementia that that's not really how it goes, that it's more fluctuating on mental capacity. But powers of attorney are documents that let you take control and choose who you want to be your decision maker. And that sounds great. Sometimes it goes really, really well, and sometimes it goes wrong. So is there a set of criteria, Laura, that people need to pay attention to before they make that decision or ask a specific person or a group of people to take on that powers of attorney? Absolutely. It's important, first of all, that you have to ask somebody who's an adult. So I have kids, they're teenagers, they couldn't serve as an attorney. You have to be an adult. You have to be over the age of 18, first of all. Second of all, you can't be in any kind of conflict with somebody. And, of course, you shouldn't pick somebody that you're in conflict with anyway. But for some people who may not have a lot of people in their life, that can be a challenge. You can pick one person or you can pick more than one person to be a decision maker. Now, there's pluses and minuses in that. If you choose one person, you're hoping that it's, you know, that they do what you want and you don't have anyone who's playing really a check or balance on that. If you pick two or more people, you have to decide, are they going to have to agree or can it just be whoever gets to make the decisions who can be contacted first most easily? So if you think about it this way, it really depends on what your situation is. If you pick two people and you say that they have to agree, imagine you've got adult kids and you say, you know, John and Barb both have to agree on all of the financial decisions for me if I become incapable. Well, first of all, it may be hard. One of them may be on vacation. One of them may have moved. Maybe they can't be reached. And while they're supposed to do what you would want them to do, maybe they both don't agree on what it is that they think that you would want them to do. And they can become deadlocked. Yeah. So it's important if you're going to have that, you have to have some kind of a tiebreaker. And one of the other pieces is to make sure, kind of like a will, that you've got a backup person. So whether you pick one or two people, it doesn't matter. Make sure you pick some alternatives. In the end, powers of attorney are really an important planning document. Most people don't realize that if you become incapable, there's no default list. It doesn't automatically go to your spouse or kids or siblings. If you haven't made a power of attorney or a court hasn't appointed somebody to be your decision maker, which is quite rare, then all of those decisions go to the public guardian and trustee and they've got to find somebody. So it's a really important tool for people to make while they're still capable. 
you have to think it through. Who are you going to choose? And how is it going to work, practically speaking? So even if someone is not of that, you know, senior citizen age level, it sounds like, you know, earlier on in life, you may want to think about that as well. It's important for anyone who's an adult, as as long as you're more than 18, really everybody should have thought through a power of attorney. As I say, Mm. if you are in an accident or you're traveling, you need to have somebody who's able to make a decision for you if you become incapable. But here's the bad part of it. When you hand over your power of attorney to somebody, when you hand over a document that lets them essentially sign your name, you're handing over the reins of your entire finances, usually to them. And that means the decisions that they make can literally bankrupt you. And what we know is elder financial abuse is one of the most common forms of elder abuse. We think about 5 to 8% of the population reports having had an elder financial abuse incident in the last one year. Wow. Except that we know that that number is much, much bigger because people don't want to report. As you can imagine, it's very difficult. And when we were doing the surveys, we weren't able to talk to people in long-term care or people who were themselves already incapable. So if we say 5 to 8%, you can make sure that you could double that number at least. Yeah. The powers of attorney are as I say, great and important tools, but if you sign them and somebody takes advantage, it can literally financially destroy you. Okay, so you have uh, been able to scare a ton of people who are hearing this, Laura. What... Is there criteria? I mean, do you have some some good advice for folks who haven't been able to uh, pick someone yet or think it through clearly? I mean, is there a checklist? How do, how do we go about this? There's some great tools out there. Some of the tools that I really recommend are from an organization called the National Initiative for Care of the Elderly, NICE, mm-hmm. the NICE Network. And if you go to nicenet.ca, you'll see a whole bunch of great tools and particularly a bunch on powers of attorney and joint accounts as well. So those are some great tools people can go to for free. They can see those tools in both English and French and some other languages as well. But here are some of the practical pieces. Make sure that you've had a conversation with the person who you're going to appoint. Find out for them, first of all, do they feel comfortable making those decisions? People ask, who should I appoint? I say, look, Find that detail-oriented person who's comfortable with bookkeeping or accounting because it's no great pleasure to be appointed an attorney for somebody. It's a job, mm-hmm. and you can get a little bit of compensation for it, but you know, it's something that most of us do out of the, the goodness of our heart for our parents or family members and friends. But make sure you have a conversation and ask if they're willing. Number two, Make sure that they're detail-oriented and they have some good understanding about kind of what their obligations are. They've got to keep separate accounting. They've got to keep separate bank accounts. Make sure that they know how to do that thing. It's not that hard, and financial institutions can help. But make sure that they know so they don't go into it kind of not understanding their role. And the most important thing, number three, make sure that you set time aside with that person and talk to them about what your values, wishes, and beliefs are. Make sure that you express to them where you would want your money spent and where you wouldn't, what's important to you and what isn't as important to you. If you arm yourself and arm them with those tools and you pick somebody that you trust, you should be good to go. Having a power of attorney is a critically important part of anyone's plan for the future. And and once you've done that too, the amount, the the uh, the decrease of stress should be 
pretty good, right? I mean, if I've if I've figured out who's going to make those decisions for me, um, it's going to be easier on me in the long run. Absolutely. It's easier on you. It's easier on everybody. When people have a good understanding about what's expected of them and know where accounts and documents are, it's a big relief to everybody. When it comes sometimes to talking about families and Maybe someone doesn't want to pick one child over another child, or they want to pick a friend and not their kids. Having those conversations actually can be very, very helpful. Parents often feel like they need to appoint their kids to be equal in some way. And I always say to them, look, it's, a, it's really a task you're asking. Make sure that you ask the person who is best suited to do it. If you don't want to ask anyone to do it, you can actually appoint a trust company to do it for you. And, and that, that was, can be a big relief off of people's minds as well. Yeah, that's it'll good. Probably cost you, yeah, it'll probably cost you about 5% to do it over the total assets. But it means that you're getting professionals making these decisions. And it can be a big weight off if you don't feel like you have the right person in your life to choose or they don't. They don't want to have you know, money and their friendships and relationships tied up together. So it's a good option that some people can consider as well. Uh, Laura, I was, I was intrigued when you, you mentioned a, a couple things. You said power of attorneys. You also said joint accounts. And you said, you know, there can be positive and negative. So in my role as a licensed insolvency trustee, I've seen some examples where, you know, someone has had a joint account and, you know, someone has cleaned it out. Or on the other side, someone has said, yeah, there's this joint account, but it's not my money. It's only the other person's money. Um, so I wonder what, what you've seen in terms of the good and bads of, of a joint account. Exactly so. There's nothing wrong with a joint account like a tower of attorney. They can be very useful. I have joint accounts with my husband. But when you make an account joint, often it's being done between a senior and a and an adult child in order to avoid the idea of probate, which is when a will has to go through a court process after somebody has died. And there's a small fee on it. And it depends on which jurisdiction in the country you are. In BC, it's about 1.4% of total assets, but it can change a little bit depending on where you are. It's still a very minimal fee. But people are often given the advice, hey, if you make your adult son or daughter joint on all your assets, the house, the cabin, the property that you share in the family, your investment accounts, your bank accounts, then there's no real need to probate because you'll avoid going through this process because as long as somebody survives, it doesn't need to go into the will. Look, that, that, that is true. But here's what people don't tend to realize. When you put somebody joint on any asset, whether it be cash or property, it means that they own it 100% as well. So if I have $100,000 and I put my adult son joint on that, it means we each own the $100,000. And quite like you said, they can take out the account, empty the account, and go on a, a luxury cruise somewhere. And they haven't really done anything wrong. Now, there are some accounts that we know that really the person's not supposed to be owning it. They're supposed to be taking care of it as kind of a trust account. But it, it can be hard to prove after the fact once the money is gone. But here's the other thing people aren't really as aware of, and it's important. It means it also is an asset that creditors mm -hmm. or a family law claim can come after. So if mom decides to put this adult son on the family cottage because she's doing some planning and doesn't want it to go through the estate and probate, what happens if that adult son gets divorced? Well, he owns that property 
and that property will become part of the divorce claim. People really need to think through all those potential ramifications. We've been talking with Laura Tamlin Watts from the BC Law Institute, uh, their website, www.bcli.org. Laura, thanks so much for joining us on Dollars and Cents. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. Blair, we're going to talk about the impact of a person being in debt and the impact that that has on your spouse or your partner. Right. And I've got to think right off the bat, it's significant, I guess, emotionally, Mm -hmm. but not so much when it comes to sort of the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah, and that's a good way to say it, Elaine, is I think, you know, people assume that if you marry somebody or you become common law, you cohabitated for a couple of years, people assume that that suddenly means that, you know, you've married that person's debt. You owe the same amount that they owe, and if they don't pay, you've got to be on the hook. So I've sat down with couples a lot in, in my role at Sands and & Associates, and I've often wished, hey, I wish you guys came to me six months ago before you did X, Y, and Z, because quite often they're very surprised to figure out that actually couples' finances, even if they're married, are still quite separate, and sometimes the right decision is not for one partner to pay off the other person's debt. It's for both partners to investigate the solutions that will work out best for them, and quite often that's the better way collectively to go forward. Yeah, I think that's a really significant myth because I, I wouldn't have guessed that. I would have said, oh, no, if I'm marrying you, what yours is, you know, yours is mine and mine is yours, and that includes debt. Yeah. And, you know, there's with everything, there's an element of, of some truth in, in the myth, and, you know, if... God forbid, if you marry somebody and the marriage goes south and you have to divorce, then yes, debts that you've incurred collectively, even if it's in one person's name, because it was incurred as part of the marriage, it's known as, you know, basically a family debt and that type of a debt, you know, could be split. So if I was divorcing from my spouse, my spouse might say, well, I've got, you know, $10,000 in debt to RBC just in my name. I hold you accountable for 5000 of that and the law would support that. Got it. But that's only on divorce or dissolution. Um, absolutely. Absent any of that, if I owe money to Royal Bank, Royal Bank can't come to my spouse and try to collect. They can't attach to any assets of my spouse. They can't even call my spouse and make them aware of that debt. It's a contractual relationship between me and Royal Bank. And it's not Royal, or whichever bank, not beating up a Royal. Sure. <laughs> it, and it's not it's not the bank's business that I've right. suddenly gotten married or cohabitated or anything like that. The contractual relationship has not changed. That's interesting. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was this uh, poll mm-hmm. uh, from uh, Ontario that says a significant number of relationships face debt challenges from the very start. Right. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, and, and what the poll also showed is that if you don't discuss it, if you've got a challenge and each person just puts their head in the sand, well, then what's more likely is you're both going to go further into debt rather than collectively work together and get yourselves out of debt so that you can, you know, begin to build wealth and buy assets and things like that. So uh, most people are starting with debt problems, yes, but the communication is really what makes the difference is are you going to, you know, I, I've suggested widely, we've done blog posts about this, that, you know, maybe not the first or second date, but one of the, the dates before you start to live together 
you should bring your credit report and yeah. you should get your, your partner to do the same and <laughs> you'll have a so great time. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> so romantic. <laughs> oh yeah, I got to get the wine stains on it. No, uh, but it, I think it's really important to be that transparent just to, to let somebody know, you know, here's what I'm facing or, or what I'm not facing because the way that you make decisions as a couple could be completely different. And again, definitely if one person has no debt and somebody's got a bunch of debt, the right answer is usually not that the person with no debt suddenly pays off the other person's debt. Usually there's a much better alternatives to that. But it is more of a moral obligation versus a legal obligation for me to tell Joe Blow, who I'm thinking of getting married to, mm-hmm. that I owe $100,000, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's no legal obligation because you owing that money, again, getting married doesn't suddenly make Joe owe that money. Got it. But yeah, and the idea of, you know, more communication is better better than less. Um, yeah, I, I would encourage couples to be very open in the early stages of the relationship. And again, a great tool to do that is to just get the credit reports, sit them down in front of each other, and then just see what you've got there. Because quite often, this is a, a good spinoff, is quite often um, credit reports aren't accurate. You know, whether there's identity theft or things like that, you might find addresses you've never lived at, accounts you've never had open that are actually dragging down your credit score. And if you both sit there and you're looking at them, you can say, okay, I'm going to clean this up, you clean that up. And then that can be part of you guys planning on how you're going to have a financial future together. Can you can you explain to us how how uh, how a credit rating even gets uh, built yep. if it's if they could be so inaccurate at yeah. the same time? So they're you know it's the old adage of garbage in, garbage out. So a credit rating is only as good as the information that's fed to it. And you can just imagine you know close to 30 million uh, citizens in, in Canada. Um, a big subset of those have credit reports and each person's credit report. There's information about their employment, their addresses, every account, every payment. Um, it's not atypical to find that just something gets reported incorrectly and over time it could be many things reported incorrectly. So everybody in Canada has the right to get their credit report once a year for free from each of the bureaus. I do it every year and again I'm amazed at some of the things that come up there and you know my name is often misspelled as Martin so I think you know sometimes they put in Martin and someone else and then suddenly that gets into my bureau. You know if you've got a common last name and a somewhat common first name quite often you'll find that things are in your bureau where they might not be. Oh that's interesting. And they might you know the time to clear this up is not when you've applied for the mortgage and the bank's got your credit report right up in front. That's too late because this stuff can take some time. Right. So a good spin-off to being open with your, your partner is, yeah, you'll actually clean up your credit at the same time if there are any inaccuracies there. That's interesting because I don't think I've ever seen my credit rating card mm-hmm. or, you know, my information about me. Yeah. So it'd be interesting it's if, if, if scary, you pull it and you tell me if it's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to figure. I'm going to figure that out. See if it is. Yeah. Uh, so if a married person is filing a personal bankruptcy, um, you've sort of answered this already. Uh, their spouse isn't bankrupt. Right. Right. Yeah. So absolutely, their spouse is not bankrupt. So somebody can go through a bankruptcy, and it doesn't bankrupt the entire couple or the entire household or anything like that. Um, so you know, quite often, if it's a husband and wife situation, and you know, the wife might have a student loan from you know twenty years ago, and now she's not working, she could do a bankruptcy. She might be considered low income, and the bankruptcy might be over in, in nine months. Whereas comparing the household, if they decided, okay, we want to pay this off together, you know, if it was a big student loan, that could take years and years um, of income from the family, but not income specifically from the wife if her income is low. So in those situations, again, it could be a better a better choice for one partner to deal with their debts and the other person not to contribute by trying to pay off those debts. That's really good information. Now, there are a couple situations where, yeah, if your spouse owes something, you may still owe it, um, but generally you have to be deliberate in those. And one would be if you've co-signed. 
So be very, very, very careful. If you're ever asked to Mm. co-sign something, accept that you are signing to be responsible for 100% of the debt. And so just be aware you're giving another pocket to dip into that your creditors would not otherwise have. So co-signing everything that your your spouse automatically owes, I wouldn't do that. I would really go on a case-by-case basis. Why am I required to co-sign? In usual um, situations, it won't be to your benefit to be a co-signer. So that's really important. But another one, and this one is a little bit insidious, is if you get a supplementary card um, for a credit card that your spouse has. If you, you know, banks are always offering this, you know, just get your spouse a, a supplementary card. Yes. It can be a bit of a gray area, but I've seen individuals held accountable if they've got a supplementary card and they've used it, even if it's not their account, they're just an extra card holder on them. They've suddenly made it a little bit more gray that they might start to owe that, that, that oh, money. Oh, that's really interesting. And because credit card companies, God bless them, mm-hmm. love to hand out credit cards. Oh, yeah. And they don't, and you really don't have to be of any financial means or substance in order to get one. Right. So an easy test is if your name is on the statement, if both partners' names are on the statement, that's usually a good indication. They would try to collect from both. If it's one person's name, keep it that way. Don't get the supplementary card. Don't co-sign. Just keep all the debt problems localized to whoever brought them to the relationship. Okay. And in, and in wrapping up, what if uh, the person opts to file a con- consumer proposal? How does that impact my spouse? In 30 seconds, It generally doesn't. It doesn't. (laughs) In in three seconds. No, it's very, very straightforward. So if one person's got a debt problem, they file a consumer proposal, it just makes the household better off because now that person's debt payments aren't $1,000 a month, they're probably $200 a month, and then suddenly you're better off. Excellent. If you have more questions or want more information, check out uh, Sands & Associates, their website, sands-trustee.com, or or you can call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. (laughs) And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.